Hello and welcome to the A440 Podcast, the one music podcast everyone can get in tune with. I'm your host, Charles Fiore, and on today's episode, I talk with Steve Cardenas, a renowned jazz musician, composer, teacher, and the co-author of the Thelonious Monk Fake Book. Right now, we're listening to Steve's composition, New Moon, off his album, Melody in a Dream, from Sunnyside Records, uh, available on Bandcamp. I'm going to go ahead and get right to our interview, but uh, first I thought perhaps a little bit of background was required on Thelonious Monk uh, in case maybe you've heard of him but aren't that familiar with who he is or what he did that was so great. Thelonious Monk is one of jazz music's greats. Uh, Piano player, Monk has had more of his compositions recorded than any other jazz composer with the exception of Duke Ellington. If there were a Mount Rushmore for jazz musicians, you'd have Duke Ellington, You'd have Miles Davis, you'd have Thelonious Monk, and then, you know, maybe somebody like John Coltrane, something like that. Monk was born in 1915 in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. He's known for his very unorthodox playing style, which makes transcribing his songs very difficult. His chords are just all over the place. Sometimes it's very difficult to even know what chord he's playing. He's rhythmically unique, and he has certain quirks to his playing style, like where he'll hammer one note and slide quickly into a note above. Uh, This is a way of playing that's impossible, for example, for horn players to even replicate. And again, makes transcribing Monk very difficult, but gives Monk his very unique, recognizable sound. Again, thanks so much to Steve Cardenas for letting us use New Moon to open and close the episode. Uh, Without further ado, here's my conversation with Steve Cardenas. Steve, thank you so much for being on the A440 podcast. Uh, sure. I really appreciate thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, uh, so I guess my first question is, are we the last two people in America with landlines? <laughs> yeah, it's possible. I, I'm not exactly sure why I'm keeping mine, but it seems uh, to, to work for, well, certain things like this every once in a while. So, And I've got such a cheap plan that, you know... <laughs> I think I've also had this phone number for, you know, almost 25 years. So it's hard to let go of a 212 New York number. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Those things are, yeah, yeah like gold. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they were rare 20 years ago or whatever, you know, so um, hard yeah. to come. So, yeah. Um, are, you with, are you enjoying, are you getting some time off? I'm not crazy busy right now, but there's a steady, just kind of like a really nice pace to the summer. And I had a, a lot of uh, touring in the f- uh, spring, and I have a, a lot coming up in the fall. So this is just fine, and I'm actually going to record a new record next week so of my own. So everything's kind of – I couldn't ask for kind of a better scenario in terms of timing and all of those things. That's awesome. When uh, yeah. do, Is there an estimated release date for that album? It'll probably – it'll be next year. I'm not sure when. Because okay. I I got to talk to Sunnyside about that, you know. But uh, Great. just first first things first, I gotta we gotta record it. So <laughs> and and Sunnyside did Melody in a Dream, right? They were the um, they did, yeah. And yeah. and my previous one too, West of Middle. You know, yeah. You you mentioned you were touring, and I I happened I'm good friends with the uh, bass player Jason Foreman, who 
uh, played with you when you, last time you came through Durham uh, with mm -hmm. Keith Gans, I guess. Um, right. Yeah. And he, um, and so I know, and he was saying, uh, so I, I just asked him what it was like to play with you. And, uh, uh, and he, I mean, he literally said the words uh, uh, that he wants to be like you when he grows up. Oh. <laughs> which, 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 I don't um, even know what to say. Yeah, <laughs> there, there are, there are uh, higher bars to be made. <laughs> but I appreciate, I appreciate the thought. I mean, you know, anyone that I just, first of all, just, I just feel lucky to play and be a musician <laughs> to right. be able to do this. And then, secondly, anyone that I play with that enjoys it i consider that a success right there whether or not i felt like i had a you know good night or whatever nice yeah, yeah. he was saying uh he, he was saying that you, he, you you seem to really get energized off the rhythm section and kind of gave them a lot of room to you know play and breathe and stuff like that um and again you've done it all i mean you've been you've had your own projects and then you've been you know, on, on a lot, many other people's projects as well. I mean, is there a different approach that you take when you're leading your own thing? You know what I mean? Like what's, what's the setup there? Well, um, one thing I would say, uh, I mean, I've been very fortunate and grateful to have been in bands led by, you know, some people that I grew up listening to or, and admired and, you know, various musicians and, uh, I've learned so much from those situations as well as bands that didn't have maybe legendary musicians. I, I think every playing situation always has something, you know, always something you're going to learn from. And, um, but one thing I I've learned, you know, a lot of the, the groups I were in were led interestingly by um, bass players or drummers. And that's kind of true even now. A lot of the groups I'm in, and uh, I, I guess there's one of the things I've kind of, kind of observed over the years is I've, I've, I've felt like, and this is a generalization. I just not like anything you would hold fast and true to, but I've often found that people that have been sidemen in groups often make the really great band leaders. I was going to say the best, but let's just say really great band leaders. Okay. I think simply because they understand the dynamics of what it is to be a sideman. So when they're a band leader, they just know how to present things. And, and that said, you know, sometimes the best way to present things is to not say very much and let your side people just be themselves. You can, you can talk about little specific things but um the more you try to rein people in it, it things just all of us you know can get less spontaneous less relaxed all those things you kind of the things that you want to be there so i i just you know along with being on the bandstand i just want to i want everyone to have a great time and feel open and uh bring try to bring the best out in each other that's really cool, and I, you know, I, I, I agree because then in, in that case, it's a very, it becomes a true collaboration, then, right? I mean, it's so it's, um, and yeah. I, and I feel like you're, you can kind of reach new heights that you wouldn't have otherwise. Is you know, yeah, um, there's a large element of trust. Yeah. That's the one thing, especially you know, if I, for instance, Paul Motion and Charlie Hayden, those 
those guys, those band leaders, I can't remember one time where either of those guys ever said how to play something. They, I mean, we, we, we might rehearse a tune and, and Paul might say, you know, it's this kind of vibe, but he knew how he, everybody was in that band because he trusted them and he knew that they would with very little information get to the essence of whatever tune was being played so that when you have that kind of trust and you know i feel like you know 99 percent of the time musicians are, are capable of that kind of responsibility you know you give them the trust you give them the, the freedom and and they're going to you know most of the time going to do things that are musical and 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 uh interactive those kinds of things that's cool yeah um you i read an interview with you um and a few years back and you and you said that the thing that surprised you the most about your own playing uh your own work was when you managed to play something that you might like <laughs> um, and you <laughs> called it you and i'm sure that you were talking cheek a little bit i mean but you, but you called it a major accomplishment to get to that place you know and like <laughs> I think I feel you on that, you know, um, but I guess I was just wondering if you could explain that a little bit more at, if at all, like, are well, you just never I satisfied mean, in general or? I think, I think I'm probably speaking for most musicians when, when I'm saying it's not like, it's not like something I wrestle with or, you know, um, it's not a really serious, it, it was kind of tongue in cheek, but, but I think, you know, like I've, I, I'll tell students, you know, that, that might come to a lesson and say, Oh, you know, I feel, I don't know what to work on. I feel so stale. I'm so tired of, you know, everything I play, blah, blah, blah. And I say, well, okay. You know, who do you listen to the most? You know, what musician you listen to the most? And they might name, you know, whoever, you know, and I say, well, no, that's not true. You actually listen to yourself the most, <laughs> you know, when you're, cause you play every day and, uh, so you you know everything that you do, you know it. No one else does. So to you, everything just feels like oh, I can't, you know, it's hard to step outside and be objective to be yourself. So I think that's the thing, you know, we're 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 all you know musicians are constantly striving, constantly trying to keep things fresh and find new ways. But that's that it's kind of inherently built in the fact that we hear ourselves all the time. It's like, Oh, I got to come up with something else. <laughs> right. Right. You know, right, right. So, I mean, it's a, it's an eternal exploration and that's kind of the beauty of it, but it, it, it houses a few little frustrations from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you feel like your playing has evolved significantly over the course of your career because of that as you're absolutely yeah well it's evolved you know just through i think over time and experience and and the the musicians that i've played with especially i mean i i've been through you know my early years in kansas city and played with such great musicians there and and many of them are still there and then i had a little bit of time in california just all of that stuff was perfect for me uh, growing and, and I'm eternally grateful for everybody's patience <laughs> and enduring whatever shortcomings I may have had in whatever group. But coming to New York, there were, there were some realizations that happened very quickly, which one was 
okay, everybody here is very much into trying to find their own kind of voice. They're, you know, they want to, at least the, the people I, were, I was meeting at the time. And so I thought, you know, I have some musicians that I've listened to, certain guitarists and this and that. And, and that's what I think happened um, over the course of the first few years in New York. I started to hear things in my playing that I felt like were distinctly coming from me. And um, that's this kind of environment, this kind of creative, intense environment will uh, impose that upon you, actually, <laughs> somewhat. Absolutely. Yeah, I can imagine the um. I love uh, the. I think it was the ninety ninety nine album, uh, Shebang. No, um, yeah, my first one. Yeah. Your first one, yeah. And uh, yeah. just to that point, I mean, that's so nuanced and in so many quiet moments. And 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 I guess and I was just wondering, like, I mean, is that twenty years on now. I mean, could you make that album now? Well, that record, being my, my first, and I think this is true of a lot of people's first records. It's sort of like there were tunes that had been waiting. To be recorded you know some of those tunes were already several years old and at the time I remember even thinking I'm just kind of barely relating to some of these tunes and I thought but I, I still like them I want to record them uh, so I, I revisited some of them and made them a little more up to date to what I was kind of hearing and feeling it you know at that time okay. but over since that you know last 20 years I've written a lot of different music I've heard a lot of different things I've played with a lot of different people so while I do like some of those tunes there are there are some tunes on that record that I like them but I wouldn't necessarily relate to them as much as things I've written recently or in the last you know five years or so but, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is this new record that I'm going to record, it's going to be all original again, which is, I haven't done that since Shebang. And I think there's, like, all, certain tunes have echoes of just because it's me, you know, in my writing. It's like, oh, that kind of reminds me of that section of that. <laughs> of course, yeah, you know. <laughs> so that's inevitable. Yeah. Yeah, it is. No, it's, yeah, well, it needs to have your signature, right, or your... Uh... Touch, right? Well, whether I like it, whether I'm trying, want to or not, it will. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, is there value in not playing a note? Value in not playing mean leaving space? Leaving space. What's, what's yeah. not said? I feel like you're playing particularly sometimes is very, leaves a lot of space. Do you, is that something you're conscious of? It's something that I'm conscious of, it, but it's something that I, it just, I think comes up somewhat natural to me, maybe just through influences. I mean, I do love Miles Davis's playing. <laughs> yeah, sure. He's kind of the epitome of space. And But at the same time, you know, I, I, I love certain players that have a lot of density, obviously like Coltrane and, but he could, you know, he did a whole album of ballads <laughs> yeah. and he could, he actually could play anything for as virtuosic as he was. He's, he, when he played blues, he played blues. And when he played a ballad, he played the ballad. He didn't rip through a bunch of vocabulary over a ballad, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, right. So that's, that's why he was one of the greatest of all time, because he played the music. He, he always played the, the music yeah. first. Yeah. 
And um, so that to me, and actually that's a good place to end up with it. To me, it's really just like, what is this song? What is this music asking for? And then it just kind of happens that way. I'm not really one to like say, I got to, I got to play my stuff through all this. I have to, I got to show them I can play, you know, uh, if I do that, then I'll play worse, you know? <laughs> yep. I hear that for sure. Um, that's actually a pretty solid uh, transition from Coltrane to, uh, we can talking about Thelonious Monk a little bit. Um, yeah, right. That's, that's pretty good. Uh, you're, so you're the author of the Thelonious Monk fake book. And so this book collects more than 70 monk compositions, um, some of which appear in print in this book for the first time ever. Um, right. And then, uh, and it's all, correct me if I'm wrong now, it's, it's all but two of his compositions, two of his improv compositions aren't in there, right. but otherwise it's, it's everything, yeah. You ready for a long answer to all this? Do it. <laughs> Let's have it. <laughs> okay. So just to clarify, first of all, Don Sickler and I worked on that book. I'm not the, I'm not the author. Without Don Sickler, the book would not exist. I, there was one kind of winter in I don't know, late 90s where I was, I kind of had the time to just kind of go through what monk charts I had. And I just kind of cleaned them up a bit, just like listen to other, you know, recordings and, oh, that didn't write, I don't, you know, fix that. But my aim was always just to kind of, because there were so many bad charts and all, all the, the fake books, so many errors and, or just to, with all due respect, Miles's version of a monk tune, which was diluted to fit, you know, somebody who wanted to do an interpretation. I, I would never uh, discredit Miles for wanting to interpret one of monk's tunes, but sometimes those versions became the norm and it's like, oh, you know, you should hear the original. <laughs> yeah. So um, my feeling was I wanted to have really good charts to everything just for myself and I would hand him you know, some of those to some friends and things got passed around. There were, there were, that was going on a lot anyway with Monk's music. So this one friend of mine said, Hey, you know, if you wanted to, if you want to do a book, you know, you should talk to Don Sickler. I said, well, I'm not trying to do a book. This is just, sure. you know, like everybody else just want to play these tunes as well as possible. And I thought about, you know, let a couple months go by, oh, you know, just call, call him. And I called him and he, and I explained, you know, I, he said, well, how did you write him out? I said, well, you know, I just did kind of fake book style, just lead sheet melody with chord symbols. I said, but they're not dilute. Like all the information, what I f felt was the composition, you know, not a bunch of monks comping or, but rather the melody and any, you know, in the chord symbols and any specific chord voicings that applied. Uh, so he said, why don't you come over? And I went over and he was looking at it and he said, yeah, you know, Hal Leonard's been kind of nudging me to do a, a book of all of Monk's music, but I never wanted to do it by myself. If, if they give me the green light, would you want to work on it with me? And I was like, Ooh, okay. So yeah. the thing you got to know about Don is that He's, you know, a great trumpet player and arranger, and he also administered Filoni's Music Corp Publishing for the Monk family. So he knew the family, and he also had photocopies of 16 of Monk's tunes, like original manuscript. Wow. <laughs> so so we, 
you know, between what charts I had, and Don had done some transcribing too, between the two of us, we were really kind of starting at square three, but but that didn't keep him from, because he had done a lot of this sort of work before, so he was he was basically utilizing me as being the person to kind of proofread transcript, you know, we I would take my own transcriptions and then he would, his wife would, would make um, uh, uh, like CDs of every version that Monk recorded of whatever particular tune. We would select what we felt like was the most representative, like the clearest recording of that tune and use that as the basis for the chart. And um, Except in the case of Don had a lead sheet, that would that would become the what we would use. So that there, you know, there are 16 charts in there that come directly from Monk, even though there is a source recording listed above. I want to keep talking about Monk, but let's just walk it back a little bit and talk about fake books in general, just in case someone's not familiar with that term. Like, mm -hmm. like they've been around a long time, right? Uh, this idea yeah, of I mean, fake books, yeah. So this is just a lot of this is just going to be speculation on my part, but okay. I think it's r relatively safe to say some of these things. <laughs> so <laughs> fake books, you know, because or you know, bebop and jazz before that, a, a lot of it's sort of like storytelling, where um, and even Monk taught a lot of, even though he wrote things out, he taught a lot of his musicians his tunes by ear. So. Uh, you know, a lot of music was learned, you know, either on the bandstand or in short rehearsals by just by I think Ellington even used to just show his band. He would either play or sing them certain sections. I mean, I know they had music, too, but there was some of that music that was just done, you know, through sound, <laughs> learned through sound, which is great, which is, you know, incredible. But. I think what emerged was that because there was so much music, so already a huge catalog, that a lot of uh, there were musicians that wrote things out, and somebody took the initiative to put together these kind of you know uh, not officially published. So fake book is not an officially published. They call it fake because it's not published with all the rights and all the legal proceedings for things to go to various artists. It's really just an underground uh, uh, book for, you know, originally for musicians, just a, hand, a way for them to learn music more quickly by having it written out. But consequently, you, you had people that transcribed that weren't necessarily all that great at transcribing. So they might have, you know, 80% or 90% of the tune accurate, but there would be some funny, there'd be some suspect, suspect parts, sure. chord, wrong chords or some wrong notes, whatever. So, but a lot of people, I mean, the most uh, vigilant musicians would see that and they would go, hmm, I'm not sure about that. And they would go to recording and just fix it on their own. But then there was this I got to mention the real book because that was kind of a revolutionary thing because all the books that preceded the real book were referred to as fake books. And they were kind of just, it was just commonly known that they weren't necessarily super accurate, but they were convenient for the 
like I mentioned, the very reason of being able to play the music without having to learn it all by ear. And um, but the real book was kind of touted itself on being the most accurate, which at the time it was came out in the mid seventies. It merged some couple of guys out of Boston, put it together. And it wasn't Steve Swallow, contrary to what some people think. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cause I played in Steve's quintet. So I know for sure. I was going to ask. <laughs> I know you guys have played, played together. What it yeah. was, this was somebody, I think it was a guy named Mitch Coodley who has a, a he was one of the people, but he has some of his compositions in the book. But he knew Swallow. He knew Missy. You know, he was in Boston. He knew those guys. So he got lead sheets from those people. So cool. That's why those tunes are super accurate, because he got the lead sheets from them. But the the standards came, like what the tunes that you see are standards in the real book are really coming from the sheet music. Um, occasionally, there might be a standard that has some of maybe Bill Evans changes or something. And those, the standards are kind of okay in those books. And, you know, sometimes they're a little suspect, but the Monk tunes are not good. And the Wayne Shorter tunes are inaccurate. You know, there, there was some transcribing that went on that wasn't still not, not really great. So the real book is, I think, you know, at least the fifth edition uh, is, which was the last edition was uh, about probably 70% accurate, which is not a good percentage. <laughs> yeah, not for that kind of thing, that's for sure. Right. I remember the uh, tune Blue Train was not only was the title misspelled, but every chord and almost every note was wrong. <laughs> but, you know, go figure. Um, that's tough to but do. The yeah. sixth edition was put out legally by Hal Leonard, and they, I don't know who, but somebody went in there and fixed a lot of stuff. And, okay. Um, they finally got the first chord of blue and green right <laughs> after after 30 plus years <laughs> of it being wrong in the book. Do you so, know what that chord is off the top of your head? What the? It's G minor. Okay. Um, it, that's what it is on the original. That's what Bill Evans plays in his version. That's what John McLaughlin plays in his version. <laughs> and for some reason, somebody heard it as a B flat major oh, wow. chord, which, you know, they're related, but um, you, you listen to any... Uh, the original recordings or recordings that came soon after, and there's a big fat G bass note <laughs> on, you know, and that's even what Bill Evans talks about that, you know, he put the tune together, but Miles came to him with this idea with these two chords. What do you think about this G minor to A7? I mean, it's kind of like, really? You still wrote a B flat, even though it's kind of even said that Miles said to Bill <laughs> G minor. <laughs> anyway, so that's the thing is uh, I I still tell you know even students say oh I I have the book that you did and Monk book and I say well that's cool that's a good place to start maybe I said but don't take our word for it go into the recordings find differences maybe we got something wrong you know. Don't ever assume that any chart you see is exactly is the word because the recordings tell the tale. And they were pro it sounds to me like there are, there are challenges with transcribing uh, Thelonious Monk that maybe don't necessarily aren't as challenging uh, with other musicians just because of the way some of his unorthodox ways of approaching Absolutely. the piano. Is that would you say that's true? Is that Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. There, there are challenges, but on on a few of those uh, 
uh, or, or you know photocopies of manuscript that Don had, there were revelations that were amazing. Um, just because you know Monk, he did use chord symbols, but he didn't use chord symbols that uh, completely lined up with maybe maybe some of the most mon he didn't use like the triangles and the minus signs and all those things. Okay. Um, but he did. There was one chord that Don and I at the beginning of Aranel which actually was mostly written by two other people in his band at the time, Idris Suleiman and Sadiq Hakim. And uh, the first chord I had, you know, I won't get into too much of the technical, but I had it written as one thing. Don had it written as a thing. And I, and I told Don, I said, you know, there's this other note. And that's why I wrote it kind of with this weird, like, sharp 13th. <laughs> I said, I'm not proud of that, but I can't think of any other way to write it. Uh -huh. And he said, you know, I think I have a, a photocopy of this. And he pulled it out, and here it was, Aronel. Monk had scratched out his name and wrote the other two guys' name on it. I think, you know, it's pretty safe to assume he contributed something to it. It's hard to just say exactly how much. Sure. But his publishing is on it, so that's why, and people really associate it with him. Right. But the first chord of the tune is the one we, and it's also in the tune itself, and it's, we had some kind of discombobulated B flat minor, major seven, blah, blah, blah. Well, Monk just wrote B flat minor, major seven, <laughs> minor seven. <laughs> you know, it, it's a yeah. B flat minor chord with two sevens, and it's like, wow. perfect. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He really was a pioneer and and using, de you know, clusters and densities in harmony. But it's funny, you know, early on, so many people, you, you'd read old articles where they perceive that as him making mistakes. And the more I, it, and, and especially through the process of doing this book, I just realized just his intention was so exacting his rhythm his 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 time his uh chord voicing choices all exact like you could tell was intentional everything was meant to be was there a single song that maybe you understood differently or kind of opened up to you in a surprising way as you were transcribing um well uh, there was one original chart to who knows so the the tune most of the tunes that don had were from the the, the photocopies were from the early Blue Note era, which were some of the hardest ones. He didn't even re-record a, lo a lot of those tunes. And there's a tune of his called Who Knows that has some very rapid lines in it. And you can't tell at the end of certain phrases, kind of when you slow down what the horns are playing, they're going like, blah, and then you slow it down and it just sounds like, blah. <laughs> just to try to get the sing the single note, and that was really lucky that we had a chart to that because um, then you go, oh wow, oh wow, this is amazing. And then what's interesting is when I would play along, you know, with that the notes of that chart with a the recording, then it's almost like my ear would go, oh yeah, that that is what they're playing, but it's it would have been impossible to get that, but then. You know, you you start to kind of hear it, you know. So, round midnight has always been one that, as people, you know, musicians are always like, oh, I don't like to play that tune because I never know what people, you know, want to what chord changes are going to play because 
people play got to you know there was a time where people were playing miles's version so much that when people started to revisit monks chord changes which are pretty different in various spots um it's kind of like you need to know <laughs> you need to know what those specifics are it's, yeah. it's, it's that's such a I don't, this is slightly off topic but it, it seems a little bit to me like so unique to jazz the way musicians or the, the way that one jazz artist will take another song and sort of and like change chords and you know what i mean mm -hmm. or whatever but still it's, yeah that song i mean you, you would never hear like imagine dragons covering nirvana but changing you know the, the chord yeah. progression to the bridge or whatever you know like that would right. that would never happen you know um <laughs> it's just it's, just, it's a unique yeah. it's almost unique to that genre i don't know so. yeah yeah well because because jazz musicians were, were so used to taking standards and reharmonizing that and and you know miles the thing about miles davis like i said you know i would I actually feel like, you know, he just kind of took Monk's tunes and made them a little more open for his purposes because, you know, Monk's music can get pretty angular. So Miles, the original melody on Well You Needn't has more of a range and he just chose to not play those exact notes, but he's playing the, he's playing, you know, 95% of what's, you know, he's playing mostly what's there. And and then, but he changed the bridge a lot, and um, but but to his liking, and he didn't change the essence of the tune though. That's the thing, you know. It, you, it's clearly well, you needn't. It just has a few harmonic differences and a couple of melodic differences. That's awesome. I mean, I gotta say the I mean the Thelonious Monk um, fake book is great, even just for uh, non-jazz musicians. I mean, I really enjoyed just sitting down with the notes at the end. And just you know, because you guys make suggestions like, well, listen to this song and be listening to these rhythm rhythmic changes under the melody that Monk's doing and stuff. And it really, you know, it's, it was really educational. It really opened up Monk for me. And even like just if you're interested in listening to jazz in general and understanding jazz better, I think it's, it's a really helpful book to have just because you, you you start to kind of figure out what you're actually supposed to be listening for, you know. So, um, you know, was, you know, just to say, Don, it was Don's idea to put a source recording at the top. So even, like I said, even if we were using an original manuscript, he would still sort, use the source that was closest to that manuscript. But, but there's some tunes like Crisscross where Monk changed, like that tune changed 10 years later and he took out two measures of the bridge and changed the rhythm of the A melody. And I, I remember asking Don, should we have two charts to some of these tunes? Because he said, no, he goes, let's just, in that case, let's go with the prototype version, you know, the first version, because he said people can listen and hear those differences. We don't need to provide them with every last detail of, you know, part of this is a learning experience. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, Steve, I really appreciate it. this. is This has been a great conversation. I've really, it's, the time has absolutely flown by, so I'm going to, I, I want to let you go, but um, um, I do have one uh, fanboy question, and I hope it's okay. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> um, Scott, I've been into uh, I've been into Ben Allison um, since uh -huh. basically his his first couple albums. Um, you know, and uh, you know, Third Eye is like one one great album. And uh, um, I, and I saw him play at the Green Mill in Chicago, like in the early aughts. And I would say that that's still probably one of like 
top five concert, you know, concerts I've ever been to. I had front row and um, it was like a horrible snowstorm outside and it was just like the most beautiful thing inside. You know what I mean? So um, yeah, nice. it was the coolest moment, one of those moments, you know, but, but uh-huh. you played with him now for, I think it looks like 13 years, seven albums. Um, I mean, yeah. this must be a relationship that's working pretty well. It's really uh, great. We, yeah. yeah, we're really close friends and um, he's played on, on uh, he played on uh, West of Middle on my trio record. That's yeah. the record. And he's going to play on this new recording too. And he's going to help me with some producing on it. Um, he's a he's great musician, great bass player. It's, and, you know, he's really known as a band leader and composer and a bass player, but I feel like he should get even more credit than he gets sometimes as a bass. He's an amazing musician. He's yes. just, uh, he's so instinctive. And, um, and, and he's just, we have a great time. We, we've done a lot of playing together and, and we know each other's moves so well that it's scary sometimes <laughs> what happens. <laughs> That's so cool. No, it's, it's, I just, I love all the connections in jazz and just the way, you know, and uh, it's, 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 it's always surprising, but then not that surprising to find out two people have played together for a long time because um, I admire you both so much as musicians and uh, composers. Oh man, so. thanks. And that's our show. Thanks so much again to Steve Cardenas for sitting down and talking with me for so long. Really enjoyed our conversation. And thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Keep an ear out for Steve's next album out in 2020. That album will include the uh, pianist John Coward, the drummer Brian Blade, and of course the bassist Ben Allison. So I'm very stoked to hear that. Uh, That'll be coming out again from Sunnyside Records. I know the names of musicians were coming fast and furious this episode. They're all collected in the episode notes on our website, a440pod.com. Don't forget to check us out and follow us on social, Facebook, and Twitter, a440pod. That's all for now. Have a great week. Let's jam again soon. Mm -hmm.